welcome you to another edition of Disney at Work. And we appreciate you joining us, appreciate you tuning in, and uh, we're thrilled to have another part of my interview with Tom Morris. If you'll recall, last, uh, in our last podcast, we had a chance to hear from him as he spoke about his experience in developing Journey to Imagination. Uh, please check out that podcast if you haven't already in the show notes page that goes with it because it really speaks to creativity and imagination and how that process works. Uh, today's uh, conversation with Tom is a focus on his years at Disneyland and I apologize that it's taken me uh, a couple of days to really pull this together because I think there are several ideas that come out of this and I wanted to kind of tie them together and I wanted to uh, make sense of them in terms of application that you could take back to your own organization uh, back home. So please forgive me for the, the length of time between podcasts. Uh, the next one, which will focus on his years at Disneyland Paris, probably won't take so long. But, uh, but today we're going to talk about a number of different projects that he was involved with at Disneyland. And I think it'll give you some enlightenment to uh, to some some really good lessons that uh, any of us can apply back to our own organization. So, without further ado, let's uh, let's journey in. Know that I'm going to interrupt uh, once or twice uh, to share some ideas or to kind of build on some notions and comments that Tom has made. Um, but let's uh, let's begin with uh, with uh, returning to Tom. And the Fraction de France. Yeah. In the other podcast, you talk a lot about right. how that made such an impression. You it did. Trip it did, Afterwards, yeah. and that ultimately led to Disneyland Paris. Right. But in, before you got to Disneyland Paris, you were doing some Disneyland work. Right, right. Some, and, and this is an interesting thing because your assignment was, in this situation, not really corporate Imagineering as it was in the park providing Imagineering support in the park. So it's kind of uh, corporate versus branch support yeah, I guess if I perhaps what are the what were some of the challenges of that dynamic because I want to I want to keep feeding on the right what is it about the culture that works or doesn't maybe always work right at Imagineering was it did it ever feel like uh, those guys and us guys or how did that work because not that on was a real Epcot change for you? not on Epcot but maybe it, but at after oh at Disneyland when uh, you were assigned to be because you were yes going, I, you were you were going to you yes, I was working out of the office there. Imagineering every day. You were going right. to Disneyland for about day. a year. Okay, I think. yeah, yeah. Um, and it was. Um, I don't think it was Imagineering versus Imagineering, but there was a little bit of, you know, there was a little bit of tension between Imagineering and and park operations. So the example I can think of is churros, and that was um, the foods division. I think had gone to IAPA or something, and it had witnessed the invention of the churro, or at least the introduction of it from a theme park point of view. And, <laughs> and they haven't let go of it And since. they haven't let go of it. So they wanted to experiment with selling churros right? because they had no idea, you know, whatsoever whether they'd be popular or not. And I think they probably had a hunch. but um, And so they just ordered some off-the-shelf, you know, institutional, industrial uh, churro cars, stainless steel, you know, that look like 
you know, you, you'd find yeah. it anywhere. Yeah. They weren't themed as standard, anything. Yeah. Standard industry. And so they, they bought a bunch of those and put them out into the park to test the idea. And so that created some, you know, uh, unpleasantness probably um, between the WDI office there and the foods division. So uh, it fell into my lap to design these food carts um, or these churro wagons, uh, one themed for each. They basically had five, you know, or six of these carts, and one was each in each land. And they were going to see, like, you know, if there was one land that was more, you know, I don't think they thought that it would be ubiquitous like popcorn. I yeah. think they thought, you know, they might have a couple of these wagons in the park eventually. And so um, the office there convinced them that they needed to kick in some money to dress those wagons up as long as they were going to be out in the park. This would have been like summer of 84 or 85. And um, so I designed one for Tomorrowland, uh, Fantasyland, New Orleans Square, Bear Country or Frontierland. And um, I wish I still had the sketches of them. But, but that's an yeah. example yeah. Of, of that tension between right. ops and a division of yeah, ops in this right. case and an imagineering you know right. they want to test an idea but they don't want to throw um, a, a lot ton of money, money at right. it only right. to find out nobody wants a churro right um, exactly and so you kind of have this how did you um, how did you broker that how did how did people broker that relationship who, who was, I don't, or well, was there I was, someone who was really good at at reaching across. Oh yeah, because I wasn't. Table. It wasn't. I didn't have to get in the middle of that. That yeah. was uh, Kim Irvine. You know, mm. was left with that challenge, and she handled it really well. And you know, because she's charming, and she has a way of working with the folks at Disneyland in a non-confrontational way. Whereas someone who was new uh, and passionate, like I was, might have. You know, but I was there to learn. You know, I wasn't there to. Um, to manage or to direct um, or to fight the cause. So you know. what would you say was the quality Kim brought to the table of that? Well, say? her experience and her ability to work, you know, with the, all of the different divisions at Disneyland. Yeah. You know, she, she had a, a long, had already had a long history of working with the maintenance folks, the engineers, the foods people, the merchandise folks. And that was about the same time too. You know, it's post Walt now by 20 years. And so every year they're being a little bit more bold, all the different divisions, but particularly merchandise and foods are being a little bit more bold about pushing the envelope that yeah. had been, you know, uh, they had kind of a shorter leash back in old timey days and their leashes were getting longer and longer. And so it was <laughs> becoming more and more challenging for Imagineering to keep on top of that. So, yeah, you know, yeah, sometimes own, it was, yeah, I mean, sometimes, the design, yeah, right, the, right. On the thematic quality of it. Right. Yeah. Before we go any further with uh, our interview with Tom, I want to just stop and talk about how significant this thing is. A, a churro card is a, a minor piece of a huge uh, operation. Uh, that 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 is Disneyland, and when you think about Pirates of the Caribbean and and uh, the Jungle Cruise and and Indiana Jones Adventure and big restaurants um, that dominate the park, the Blue Bayou and 
and uh, the French market. Yeah, and, and here we're talking about a churro cart and the importance that Tom brings to the conversation of partnering in order to create for that. And he does a great job of giving a Kim Irvine credit as being that individual who really uh, came to the table to partner with other people and bring them together and, and, and not just food and beverage, but partnering with um, operations and partnering with maintenance and par partnering with uh, custodial and so forth. I, I think that's an important thing because too, time, too often we are held up in our own silos. And what prevents us from giving a superb customer experience is our inability to uh, break down those silos and stop those turf wars and work together effectively. And, and the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we get, uh, how do we come over to the other side and help them and support them and learn from them and understand them? I love the story that is told about um, John Hench. It was mentioned in uh, Marty Sklar's uh, book about his life. And he talks about John Hench being assigned by Walt Disney uh, to redesign the uh, the Plaza Inn restaurant. In fact, let me just read this uh, quotation from the book. Assigned by Walt to redesign Disneyland's Victorian-style Plaza Inn in the early 1960s, John complained that he knew nothing about restaurants. Quote, well, find out, Walt responded. John enrolled in a course in restaurant management at UCLA. And from then on, he was not only the quintessential designer, he was the design staff's authority on back-of-the-house restaurant organization and requirements. I, I love that story because it says, here's somebody who went out of their way to um, really understand the, other people's business and not just say, well, that's their job, that's, that's their problem, um, but rather to really... Um, again, it's one way of breaking down those silos. I might mention that I think that uh, one of the uh, really untold stories in the unveiling of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at both Disneyland and Walt Disney World is how uh, Imagineering has worked um, not just with both park operations, but with food and beverage and with merchandise and with all of the different entities of the operation to create a seamless, um, consistent experience. Now, it's not that Disney Imagineering hasn't done this before. I mean, I mean, for instance, um, you know, when Toy Story Mania was built on one coast, it was ultimately built on the other coast. And once you get on the ride, it's pretty much the same thing. The same thing uh, is true with uh, uh, the Little Mermaid attraction at Disney California Adventure. It has a different exterior than the one in the New Fantasyland at Magic Kingdom. But once you're on the attraction, it's the same ride. I mean, it's the same experience. There are minor differences that that um, those who frequent those attractions know about, but, but for the most part, it's the same. What was interesting about Galaxy's Edge is not that um, Smuggler's Run 
um, Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run attraction or the upcoming Rise of the Resistance attraction was replicated in both parks. So was the food and beverage experience. The Cantina, Docking Bay 7, Ronto's Roasters, they are identical experiences, not only from an architectural layout uh, design point of view, front of the house, back of the house, but also even the menus pretty much started the same. Uh, Blue Milk uh, was, uh, for the milk stand, was, was a combined uh, effort across food and beverage, across both areas of the operation. You gotta understand, you could design some food and beverage experience for one, uh, for one coast, say for Disneyland, but how do you get those same ingredients and, and, and get them at the same consistency on the other coast? And so again, a lot of, um, a lot of work went into creating a consistent experience. Now, since then, there have been some minor changes to the menus. They've become a little bit more vegan um, over at Disneyland. I'd like to see even more of that over at Walt Disney World. Um, and there has been the whole dialogue around the menu and whether or not it should change, uh, whether it was too confusing to guess and, and um, tip yip should be called chicken or, or vice versa and what compromise has been reached there. But really, when you talk about the major change being made is the menu board uh, or the, 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 the signage itself, not even the menu, the signage. Um, and that's your most controversial thing about the f food and beverage coming in to two complete operations within months of each other. That's an amazing partnership that came together to create that. Same thing can be said of the retail experience. You go to Merchant Row and not only do you see the, this incredible array, the, these incredible um, uh, merchandise locations, uh, Doc Ondars and so forth, but then you have this unique array of merchandise that is just totally, totally unique and different. And I think those are great examples, again, of, of the Disney organization partnering together, breaking down the silos and building uh, the operation to, to, uh, to create one great experience. Now, let's go back to our interview with Tom because then we're gonna talk about another aspect of the Disneyland experience, Tomorrowland. You also um, were the individual responsible for masking Mary Blair's <laughs> That's mural, right, that's right, I'm sorry. Which, it was a kind of a unique creation. I love how you talk in your other uh, podcasts about the shadow periods that come to attractions. Right. 20 that's right. years after yeah. or so, they kind of fall into this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, particularly if it's something that was attempting to be either contemporary or, you know, uh, future looking, um, then it's, you know, particularly difficult. So you take old, old, old Tomorrowland, the original Tomorrowland um, from 1955. I remember by the time I was 10 years old or eight years old mm -hmm. that in my eyes, just as a, and by, at that time, I really wasn't a Disney fanatic or anything, but I remember thinking how out of date that look, that Tomorrowland looked. It reminded Cyclone me. Cyclone fencing around the flight circle didn't do it for you. No, <laughs> but either did, you know, some of the signs that looked like the same kinds of signs that would be, you know, on a liquor store, you know, like Cosmic. Um, Hand painted. Yeah, and those wall lights that were kind of like, looked like pans or dishes that were on the wall. Um, 
you know, it's just kind of funny. Um, but like, I just thought that that was already old looking, you know, it just reminded me of bowling alleys and things like that, that were, and see, I was, so I was not a, uh, at that time, a fan of what would become, you know, the Googie style or the mid-century modern style. And I grew up in West, at least for the first six years, we were in West Covina, which was kind of the, uh, mid-century modern slash Googie. The epicenter of all things Googie. (laughs) Yeah. Because I remember so many stores and shopping centers and everything uh, had that sensibility to it. So uh, when they redid tomorrow, I just thought, oh, God, this is beautiful. You know, this is so great. And then you'd see old pictures of the old one. You go, I can't believe that was ever in the park. And this is just from the perspective of now like a 9 or 10, 11-year-old. And, you know, by the time 1985 rolled around and they were talking about putting Star Tours in there, we had already, since 84, been talking about redoing Tomorrowland, you know, doing another complete overdressing the way it had been done in 67. Um, so not taking everything out, but just giving it a new look. And I did several and, and Star sketches. Tours, and Star Tours was controversial. It was. For and its time, as was Captain EO. You know, right. It just seemed so not well, of Disney. Yeah, and, to, and, to and we in. had already been looking at doing Star Wars... Uh, over the Autopia, taking the Tomorrowland Autopia out. So we had done a thrill uh, ride-through version of that mm-hmm. um, before settling on the Rediffusion simulators. simulators. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then even then it was like, well, can we put it, oh, do we replace Flight to the Moon, or can we put it on the east um, side of Space Mountain in that complex? And I remember, I guess they had done, someone had done a study, and the most cost-effective place to put it was to replace the adventure through inner space which to me seemed kind of weird because it's like stick it in your heart yeah right well also you know you're how could we how could we let that clod coat create right (laughs) right and um, that love making machine (laughs) exactly it was disneyland's tunnel of love and but um, and you know the the thing that was weird about it was uh, they're going to take out capacity and replace it don't you always want to be adding increasing yeah because i I remember that you know i was involved also in some of the early um you know as they would do their forecasts for approaching attendance for the coming five years it became clear that they were going to have to start widening some of the walkways without making it look obvious that they did that so it's like shaving a little bit more off of a planter you know um and you know because every foot really actually helped quite a bit so i think i was involved in some of those Mm. studies and um so i just remember like you know it was so important that disneyland not only widen the some of the walkways in order to accommodate the um, attendance forecast, but that your THR, your total in-park, you know, rides per hour also keep up with that. And so I was kind of shocked when they talked about just kind of repl- actually it went down. Down. Mm. Um, so yeah. But it but but it was such a big uh, brand. Right. It was to important. Yeah, that you knew people yeah. were still going to want to come. Right. Come to the table. Right. So I don't want to lose Mary Blair. Oh, yeah. Didn't bless, uh, rest in peace. But. Is it correct that you took some of the broken Mary Blair pieces and put them into the um, Italian setting, Bellanote piece in in Disneyland Paris? A few of them, I think, made it uh, over there, but I remember sending a box, like a shoebox of them um, out there and 
for whatever reason. You know, I've gone back there to see where they are, and I can find a few, but not as many hard. as I sent out. <laughs> yeah. How funny. How I funny. So, um, so they're still there, the, the you know, at Disneyland, uh, broken up wherever there's a lateral Blair, um, mosaic piece of metal sticking you out of the, the building. Uh, part of the design for that on our website, so be sure to check out the post. Actually, so many images on our um on our post that supports this uh, particular podcast and uh, and it shows um what subsequently tom designed for that space the truth is is that in creating that mural they what they did is they actually took steel rods and projected it out of the building and then covered a new mural over the tiles that mary had blair done so there were a few tiles that were taken out for the steel rods, but otherwise the mural is actually largely intact. Um, um, and then as Tom uh, notes, he takes those uh, fragments and sends them on to Disneyland Paris to be added to the Pizzeria uh, Bella Note, which I think is just a, a nice little touch. Uh, it's probably a little hard to see where they ended up, but, but still it's a nice little touch to think about them uh, being put in there. I should mention that uh, the Mary Blair mural is is a very similar style using a lot of similar colors and of course the motif of, of children at play. It's very similar to the Grand Canyon mural that you see in Disney's Contemporary Resort, that four-sided mural that is at the center and the heart of that atrium. Um, you know, when Tom talks about things being going through a shadow period, uh, it wasn't uh, that long ago when uh, that mural in the contemporary uh, could have easily been taken out for a, uh, a subsequent remodel of the contemporary. The, the good news, the thing that has blessed that mural is the fact that if you take uh, the tile off, then you get into a layer of asbestos underneath that, which uh, centers around the elevator tower. So the last thing you want to do is is to have to close down the resort in order to remove asbestos. So that mural has stayed intact and has somehow managed to gravitate past the shadow period is now a uh, uh, considered by so many a great piece of art and is, is such a, a signature part of the experience of staying at Disney's Contemporary. In fact, uh, a year or two ago, there was a beautiful vase I, I purchased that commemorated that same that same mural. So um, if you kind of hang through, hang long enough through the shadow, it reemerges. A great piece of art will reemerge as something that will be considered a classic. However, in many cases, things have to be uh, plussed up and added to. And that goes back to Walt's quote, you know, the Disneyland will never be completed, but, but we'll keep adding new things and new attractions and and plussing things up, we uh, we spoke of, uh, well, Tom speaks of Kim Irvine and her approach to working effectively with other parts of the organization. Kim really has played a long-term role uh, being a, the lead Imagineer in trying to maintain and plus and build on the original foundation of Disneyland. And... Uh, and honestly, some of her work has been controversial in nature. Uh, shops and attractions that have been modified over the years. 
people have had anxiety about one of the probably the most controversial things was the addition of Disney characters into It's a Small World, um, which honestly now everybody just kind of likes. And in fact, most people, especially the up and coming generation are, oh, there's, there's uh, uh, Lilo and there's Woody and there's Baloo the bear. Uh, there's Donald Duck and Pinocchio. As they ride through, it's a small world. It's it's almost like hidden Mickey's. It's become like hidden Disney toys and and character dolls throughout the it's a small world experience, and and it has made the attraction all the better um, because of her contribution there. In a more recent addition, she has plussed up a Sleeping Beauty Castle, which she remembers having talked to John Hench that we spoke of earlier about his feeling that the architect had made the castle with too many beiges and too many grays and needing the castle needing more color added to it. So so she's added color and even little star touches to the castle. Again, um, always trying to make the experience continually better. Let's go back to the interview with Tom. He'll talk a little bit about his father. We'll relate back to that later. And then he's going to talk about another thing he plussed up, which was the entry to the Country Bear Jamboree. Disneyland is the park of your childhood. Right. And your father, who was a school teacher, had a part-time right. job. Did he ever give you any advice, or do you have a favorite memory of your father um, and his working at the park? Well, um, he wasn't there very long. He like one season. One summer. Yeah, one summer and maybe the following winter after that. Um, and, but he, you know, he was, um, an art teacher and an English teacher. And also he was in charge of making the sets for the school plays, you know, for yes. just, he was the set, you know, set art, art, art director. Yeah. Probably set, the lighting designer too. If I no, he wasn't <laughs> <laughs> that one thing. I don't think he was, but, um, so he must've had an, you know, a particular, uh, eye out for that. Cause I remember him telling me you know, some of the secrets about pirates, not only as we rode through it the first time, but, you know, afterwards, too. He, he told me that those sets were made out of cloth, not made out of stucco uh, or yeah. wood. I mean, they're wood-framed, but the surfaces of them are made out of duvetine and then scenically painted. Um, it is one of the most disappointing things to go backstage at Pirates and see. <laughs> I love that. See, to oh, me, that's magic. You see, know? I, magic <laughs> in other places, but for some reason, it just yeah. seems too, too, yeah. too high too, school. Yeah, high yeah, school. It play. seemed too high school play. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's, I think that's what I like Pirates about it. Pirates is your it. favorite attraction. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's of the, all time. Pirates and Mansion. I think. Yeah. You know, for no other reason, just you know, from the nostalgic factor um i don't know i've never done i've never done a full inventory i'm eating olives right now but it sounds like i got it <laughs> we're, we're kind of working our way through a plate. right cheese plate um you also did in the interim period uh, a redo of the entrance to country bear jamboree oh yeah right and which that was fun is obviously no longer there rest right. in peace and right. we could go down that path but we won't today right um have, have you been to Tokyo Disney? Yes, I've seen it. Because it's there. It's been reproduced, and exactly. It's, it's beautifully yeah. reproduced with all the little details. Right. All the crazy details. Yeah. I think, I mean, other than whatever I might have found at a, at a, um, 
at a store, at a thrift store. Like I think the little bear with a microphone. I made. I mean, I bought the bear at a <laughs> thrift store, and then I made the microphone that he's holding, and probably. I think I did the graphics, and then we just went out to a, you know, hardware store and had brass, little brass. Uh, you just got resourceful on the thing. Yeah, because we didn't, we didn't want it to look like a, you know, like in a muse- real museum, all the brass plaques and graphics would be exactly the same. But this yeah. was more like a hometown, you know, very kind of, homey looking. Yeah, and um, but an interesting side note to that is, you know, I drew these really awful. Um, um, little cartoons and things like that, you know, help wanted stuff. And I did the preliminary cartoons, hoping that, you know, well, knowing that someone would come by and clean that up because I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an animator. And so they got Ann Telness to do that, and and she's now the um, head cartoonist, editorial cartoonist at the um, New York Post. No kidding. New York no Times. Kidding. New York Post or New York Times. Yeah, one of those things. Yeah, um, and. So I forgot about that until I was in the lobby at the one in um, Tokyo a couple years ago. Like, oh my God, I forgot all about that. That Anne had done those, and um, and then just you know corny gags yeah. on them and everything. But that was that was fun. That was kind of just like you know I was let loose to do that and uh, worked with a couple writers, but most of my writing I think made it in there and it you know probably got wordsmithed I don't think you've ever been asked did any of your work ever touch any of your other work ever touch Tokyo only like that I think only as a duplicate of Of something something. that I'm yeah Um, I can't think of anything original I ever did for Tokyo okay so Paris uh, the castle everything you came going back to our, our interview with Tom one of the things that he plussed up was the uh, foyer to the Country Bear Jamboree at Disneyland. Now, this attraction no longer exists at Disneyland. It's been replaced by uh, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and I could argue uh, whether that was um, a good plussing. But um, but when he had created the foyer, these little things were used uh, during a remodeling of the attraction back in the day when it was the Country Bear Jamboree to kind of plus up and entertain guests while they're waiting for the next show to take place. I have a link to um, the Country Bear Theater in Tokyo Disney where you could see a lot of the um, a lot of this, uh, the sketches and drawings and props and things that, that are used. They still are maintained at Tokyo Disneyland in both the um, foyer and in the exit of the attraction. So definitely check out that link. Um, many of those sketches, Tom notes uh, the work of Antelness in finalizing many of those sketches that are used in the foyer. We should talk about Anne. Anne is a Pulitzer Prize winner and is, yes, uh, a cartoonist for the Washington Post. Uh, she got her start at Cal Arts. Again, give credit to Walt Disney for his, his vision of, of creating a place for this for uh, artists to learn their work and and even did some animation work uh, before joining uh, Disney Imagineer for a number of years. She talks about how, and we'll have the link on the show notes page. She talks about staying up one night working uh, late on a either a personal project or on some Imagineering work 
And when she saw a news flash late at night about uh, the Tiananmen Square event that happened in 1989, to her, that was a profound uh, experience, seeing somebody who was a contemporary of hers being um, uh, uh, brought down by tanks and by the military. And that ultimately led her to becoming uh, a political cartoonist. And, um, and uh, she has gone on to take political cartoon, to make political cartoons even more relevant today. In her own way, she has plussed up uh, cartooning by, by incorporating animation into the cartoons, taking her own heritage and her own background, her own experience with Disney and others and, and bringing it into animation, which is really important because uh, right now a lot of um, uh, organizations, um, newspapers, such as the New York Times, have removed editorial cartoons. And here she is plussing and building on it. So just great examples of from the parks to the Washington Post. Um, you can see this, the importance of plussing and not shadowing um, things and to uh, continually give them new light and new opportunity. So the first lesson I think that comes out of this interview with Tom at Disneyland is about partnering with others. Uh, his example with the churro wagon and so forth. And, and the example I also gave with John Hanch and with what's happening at Galaxy's Edge. The second lesson, I think it's about plussing, not shadowing the experience. Again, with Mary Blair and Tomorrowland. And then the examples I gave with Kim Irvine with the Country Bear Jamboree and with Ann Telness of the Washington Post. If there was a third thing I'd want to talk about here that I see as a message out of the time I spent with Tom in discussing his Disneyland years, I love how Tom is always crediting others with the contribution that they have made to the work being done. Early on in the interview, Tom notes Kim Irvine's ability to work effectively with other teams. He also notes the contribution Antelness did with respect to creating the final sketches scene of the bears in the foyer of the country bear Jamboree. He mentions his father in our episode. In another podcast, he has noted the influence of his parents. We did get a chance to talk about the neon Mickey at Star Traders in Tomorrowland. But while Tom created the concept and look, he gives Mark Henn uh, in his podcast that he did uh, recently with the Sweep Spot for doing the final drawings of Mickey. It's just, it's, it's a natural trait that I see of Tom. He's He likes to give credit where credit is due. I should also mention that Tom in his post-retirement <laughs> years here is currently researching the contributions of minor known Imagineers who worked a long time ago with Disney and with whom we really know very little of, particularly those who were part of the organization in the 1950s, 1960s, and the 70s. I love his passion for crediting others. And I, it reminds me of a quotation that Marty Sklar gives in his, his book, One Little Spark. He states, uh, noting something that Ronald Reagan said, Ronald 
uh, Reagan said, quote, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit, end of quote. Then Sklar goes on to say, forget about the credit. Leave any desire of notoriety at the door with your ego. Our best attractions have been those that have been delivered by a close-knit team that shared the experience and relied upon each other to deliver the best guest experience. When a team inspires and encourages each other and is motivated only by the strength and promise of a great idea, magic happens. One spark plug will not get the car moving. Teamwork is the engine that will get you there. Those of you who are familiar with our Disney at Work podcast, we especially like to provide you souvenirs for you to take back to your organization. Relative to the three topics that we covered today, let's share a couple of ideas that you might be able to apply back home. Relative to partnering with others, ask yourself, how important is breaking silos and partnering with others to give a great guest or customer experience? Who is interfacing with your most difficult partners to create a successful interchange? What steps can you take to reside in the same space as those you need to partner with so you can build that team? How can you build a tradition of working with other partners around you and breaking down the silos? As to our topic of plussing, not shadowing the experience, ask yourself, what are you doing to create a timeless experience in the first place? Where do you risk having your products and services fall into the shadows of irrelevancy? What steps can you take to plus the experience you provide? And how can you continually make your products and services relevant? Then finally, our third theme, giving credit to others. Who are those who support you in making the magic happen? How are great ideas bringing teams together to work together? And how do you acknowledge the contribution others are making? We appreciate you joining us for this podcast and we especially appreciate Tom taking the time to share his own personal experiences. Do you want more stories, ideas, and concepts like the ones we've presented today? May I suggest check out Disney Leadership in You in this book that I've written it, I filled it with stories from over a hundred artists, imagineers, and pioneers within the Walt Disney Company. You'll get great ideas for gaining better results by effectively working with others. Please check it out on Amazon today and, and you can learn more about it on my site, DisneyAtWork.com, which we just recently updated as a website. So please join us. And uh, please make sure you subscribe to uh, our podcast because we've got more interviews with Tom as he heads out to Paris to talk about his experiences there and then beyond that with Hong Kong Disneyland. Again, thank you for joining us in this podcast. Remember that whether it's work or play, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. Thank you.